Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. My guest on this show is Lori Pepper. She is the wife of saxophonist Art Pepper, and she's been releasing music, mostly unreleased music, from Art's catalog over the last few years on her own Widow's Taste album. Now, however, she has a three-CD set, some released, some unreleased, called the Art History Project. It documents uh, the full scope of Art's career, uh, as much as is possible on three CDs. And uh, among many other tracks, it includes this one right here called Mambo de la Pinta. My guest is Lori Pepper. Her Widow's Taste label has been steadily releasing uh, primarily previously unheard music by uh, Art Pepper. And this time around, there's a three-CD set that is a combination of uh, heard and unheard music and is a, a wonderful overview, uh, as much as is possible with three records, uh, of Art's life. And uh, Lori is back on the show to talk about it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Now, we've already discussed this slightly uh, off the air, and this was what I was prepared to say first, but you already told me. So uh, I'm just going to say it anyway. Happy birthday, because tomorrow's your birthday. Thank you very much. So uh, you were last on the show two years ago, and uh, without uh, speaking specifically about the new uh, Art History Project, which we'll do in a minute, can you just give us an idea of what's been happening with Widow's Taste? Uh, at that time, you had just released the Abashiri concert and the last concert. Uh, what's happened in the interim? Oh, man. Okay. Uh, the third release was the Croydon concert, and that actually that was sent to me on CD from a fan. You know, there are fans all over the world who keep track of every uh, every performance art ever played in history, and you know they 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 are absolute collectors and they want everything. And this guy sent me the the Croydon concert. And it blew me away, and I got in touch with him, and he said, I knew you would like that. He said, it's really an amazing concert. So that was my next release. And, and when was that recorded, Lori? That was recorded, I guess, in 81. Well, okay, Milcho was there, 
so it was in May of 81, because we came back in July of 81 with George Cables and, uh, and the rest of the gang. So, so that was May of 81, and it was at uh, Concert Hall in Croydon, England, and the tour in general was just spectacular, but that night was just amazing. And I am so glad that it was recorded and that somebody had a copy. Now, what is it like for you to go out to your mailbox one day and get a CD of music you didn't know uh, had been preserved? Well, at this point, I've almost forgotten what that's like because it happens more frequently now. And I have this tremendous backlog. Um, the only thing that would really amaze me at this point is something that was recorded you know, in the 50s, basically, because uh, the stuff that was recorded after that, apparently everything was recorded, and the quality really varies. I think what would knock me out is if I played one and it, the quality was really good and the music was really good, which recently happened, and I think the next one I'm going to release is a concert in Stuttgart, which I couldn't believe. Just beautiful. So it was the Grateful Dead and Art Pepper being surreptitiously recorded for all those years. I think just about everybody has been surreptitiously recorded. And I think the attitude of, uh, you know, everybody's got their followers. And uh, I think the attitude of people like me, that I was hated those people and I wanted them to turn off their cassettes or whatever, I, it was so wrongheaded. But how was I to know? So I can I can imagine what the response uh, to all this music has been from fans who right. I'm sure were ecstatic to hear it. But how about from the the wider jazz community or even just the the wider music community? People for whom you know art's name may not be any longer at the forefront or may not have been before you started this project. What has that response been like? Well, it's hard to say, you know, because of all the people who buy it, there are not that many people who get in touch with me. And uh, but some do, and there are people who have only heard art once or twice, and then have somehow heard one of these albums and has gone out and bought bought Straight Life, and you know has become an absolute fan. You know what I would really like to do is to get to the younger generation because I don't think that art can be classified, can be pigeonholed as any particular period of music. I think it's just soulful music. People who are a little more sophisticated, who are young, should get to hear him, but they don't necessarily. And I really wish that there was some way that I could get him, you know. But when somebody's not touring, it's, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, that's where people hear their music now. They download it free online, and they go to concerts. Laura, are you taking advantage of kind of the digital music revolution to try to reach some of those folks? It seems like maybe distribution is a little easier now than it would have been if you'd done this 20 years ago. Well, yeah, and you know, the stuff is up on iTunes and a number of other places, and people can download it, and I also put up free downloads. But beyond that, I really don't know what to do. You know, I made a music video, which I think is very, very cool, from a part of a track on disc two, but nobody sees it because it's just up on my website and, and on uh, YouTube. And apparently it just, you know, it's, it's sad. 
it's just sad that, that people, you know, but there's so much available now. So I can understand it, too. Well, it's time to launch the Twitter and Facebook campaign for Art Pepper, then, I guess. We'll have to You uh, know what? We'll I've got to set up a Facebook uh, a fan page for Art, because I haven't done that yet. Yeah, come and on, I'm, man. It's like 2009 now. I know, Art's, I know. Art's got to be I'm on the a, I'm on, the on Facebook, but... But art isn't, so I got to get him out there. So yeah. let's uh, let's turn to uh, the art history project. Now this is a three disc set. Disc one is pure art, which uh, documents 1951 through 60. Uh, disc two is hard art, which is uh, 60 through 68. And then uh, disc three is consummate art, which uh, starts in the 75, I think, and goes to maybe 82 or 72 to eight, the other way around. 72 to 85, is that right? No, no, Art died in 82. Oh, that's yeah. right, 72 to 82. 75 to 82. There you yeah. go, okay, I guess I was right the first time. Um, can you talk about, there's such a breadth of music uh, to try, you know, to kind of distill down to these three CDs. Um, how did you pick the music that was going to be on this project? Personal taste. You know what the name of my record company is, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, it's my personal taste. It's my personal choices. I really, you know, the the completists have been lambasting me for releasing stuff that has been released before. But my plan always with this particular set was to give an idea of Art's development as an artist and how his life fed into his music. So I chose tunes that I thought were autobiographical, whether he wrote them or not. And and that was the entire plan, and I think I did it. You know, I'm I'm really happy with it, and I'm especially happy with releasing the stuff on disc two, which has never seen the light of day uh, before. And I, you know, and I think it's terrific stuff. So you know, I really like it. So there, there you go. So if if somebody said to you, you know, play me the story of Art Pepper, there the idea is you could hand them these three CDs and say, here it is. That's it. That's it. Well, let's start with uh, disc one, which is which is pure art and which contains the the greatest uh, amount of music that people may have heard before. But yeah. let's just kind of put it uh, put it in context. Uh, where does this start and where does it take us in the uh, the first disc? Well, you know, it begins. I wish it began in like 1949 or something, but it begins with art uh, with Stan Kenton after he came back from the war. And so it begins really in ni- around 1952. Um, there's art with Kenton, and then he left. When did he leave Kenton? Oh, wait a minute. He left Kenton in 51. So he came back right after the war, was with Kenton a while, then he left Kenton in 51. And then he was with Shorty Rogers and a number of other people, uh, his own bands. And disc one is basically art output up until the time he really got busted and and was taken off the scene for a while in the 50s and we're really we're hearing art uh, primarily on this on this record in the in the small group settings and it's a lot of i mean it's uh, 
Ben Tucker's on it a lot. Shelley Mann, Jack yeah. Sheldon, Leroy Vinegar, Russ Freeman. A lot of the a lot of the kind of guys in that scene in that area uh, yeah. with whom Art would make you know many of his kind of big impressions. And they are in the early so days. wonderful. And then there's that pianist. I don't have the the album here right now, but it was this pianist who died young, who was self taught, who Art always talked about. And for the first time, when I listened to these tracks, I believe he's on Cool Bunny and he's on track 17. Um, Carl Perkins, is that who you're talking about? Yes! Oh my God, he is so great. I mean, it's just my personal taste again. I just was blown away by him this time, and I had never really listened to him before. And Art used to talk about him all the time. The gap between, uh, well, the gap, you know, in years, if you're just looking at the CDs themselves, between disc one and disc two is is zero years. The one ends in 1960, and the other says it begins in 1960. But, mm-hmm. but the gap, uh, the gap musically, yeah. seems to me a lot larger. Yeah, it's huge. Can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of where Art was at this point in his life on disc two, and and how yeah. this music came to light? Absolutely, he came out of prison. He had been hearing Coltrane. He worshipped Coltrane. He was, he felt that his style, he was left, had been left behind, and that he had to sort of catch up. And it wasn't because he wanted to be as famous as Coltrane or anything like that. It was because he really heard what was being done and thought it was wonderful and was more expressive than what he had been doing. His music up until then had been pretty restrained. And here he was able to pull out all the stops and really make a lot of noise and be completely free and be wild and just release himself emotionally. And there are a lot of reviewers who have criticized that period of Art's life as him trying to be something that he was not, but that is not the way I see it, and it certainly isn't the way Art saw it. It was... As he said, it was a period that was freeing emotionally and, as he said, and note-wise. And he really was able to free himself and break out of a structure that had been confining him up until then. And it was very important, you know. And it's so funny. It's like it's like when Bob Dylan went electric, you know. Sure. Everybody was so pissed off. I wasn't. I liked it. <laughs> but, you know, it's like it's like people just want everything to stay exactly the same. And when you're dealing with an artist, they don't. They just can't. Picasso couldn't. Artists don't. And so this shows it's a bridge between early art and late art. And it is a very fascinating bridge. And on the, on disc three, you can hear the combination of who Art was on the first disc and who Art had become by the time of the third disc. And it's really a complete life in music, life in jazz, and no part of it could be left behind. (laughs) 
To hear you tell it, it sounds like the thing that Art connected with in Coltrane's playing was the the kind of autobiographical nature of it, if if that's the right word. The... I would say, yeah, I I wouldn't have said that, but I would agree with you that that is basically what you can call it. It was a way for him really to express himself, and the tunes he wrote at that time, which were like D section and and uh, the trip. Those things all came out of prison experiences, and it was completely autobiographical at that point, and there was no way he could restrain himself, having been locked up for the period that he had been. So you mentioned that uh, the music on disc two had not uh, seen the light of day before, right. or at least the, the first six tracks of it. Um, can you talk about how it has seen the light of day now? Where did, where did you find it? Well, it's always been around, and... Um, uh, it was a rehearsal that was recorded in Les Koenig's Contemporary Studios, which Les put away and wrote, actually wrote D. Gauss on the tape because he hated what Art was doing at that time. D. Gauss means to erase with a magnet. Right, right. right. And, um, but it, that didn't happen. And then uh, one day, a few years ago, the L.A. Jazz uh, Society... I was at a, an event of theirs, and Ken Poston brought out a reel-to-reel tape, and it was Art doing one of these rehearsals. And I just thought it was spectacular. It swung so hard, and it was so great. And from that moment, that was when I wanted to start putting that out. And so I licensed it from Contemporary who has never put it out, who will never put it out, now that it's Concord, definitely. They're not interested, really, in history unless it's, unless it's rhythm and blues history. And I licensed it and put it out. I got to do that. Now, there's two things, uh, a comment and a question. The comment is, this is the kind of thing that, if you're a jazz fan, drives you out of your mind, is that it, is, it is absolutely has to be the case that on this planet Earth, there are a gazillion hours of amazing music that we will never hear because that that connection of someone bringing out the reel to reel to like the one person on the planet who's going to do something with it that just happens so infrequently and it it drives me nuts it's the kind of thing yeah. that makes me wake up and say er but two it, you've really you've brought up the fact that uh, not only um, is you know Concord now the owner of the contemporary catalog not going to put this out now but Les Koenig wasn't interested at all in putting no. it out then, and I wanted to ask you why that was. He thought, as many of Art's contemporaries did, that what Art was doing was trampling all over his own gift. In other words, Art had a tremendous gift at restraint, at um, melodicism, at sweetness, and a purity of tone, and he violated all that. I mean, Les was not a stick in the mud. Les was recording Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry and people like that, but he did not want to hear art doing anything of that kind. And he was not at all supportive, although he did let art use the studio to do a rehearsal. 
And in fact, the band that is on that uh, disc, they toured up and down the coast. And according to the bass player, Hirsch Hamill, it's in the book, it's in Straight Life, he said people were standing on the tables and screaming. So you know that somebody liked it, and, you know, and it's, but just people were not prepared for Art Pepper to do that. The uh, the final track on disc two uh, is the only one not from that session that you've been talking right. about, which is one with the Buddy Rich Band. And as I understand it, this is a uh, this album, uh, which I think was called Mercy Mercy, had already been recorded once. Yeah, and uh, they recorded it again. Can you talk about why they did that? Absolutely. They are. It's it's in the book, Straight Life. But basically, um, Don Menza told me the story. They had already recorded it. Then Art joined the band, and Menza, uh, to hear him tell it, actually, went to Buddy Rich and said, listen, this is an entirely different band now with Art Pepper here, and I think somebody else was in the band, and he said, I think we should do it again and do it live. Apparently, it had been a studio album, and Buddy agreed. And that was all there was to it, and so they did do it. Interestingly enough, the one track that I've included is a track that was not on the first release, which was an LP, and could not be included because it made the album too long. And then when they put out a CD, they put out that track. So many people have talked about that album and art playing on Alfie. But in fact, when I heard the album... This Chelsea Bridge was the one that, you know, once again, I'm saying it's my taste. And I thought Chelsea Bridge was amazing. Well, it's a pretty incredible compliment when, I mean, this wasn't like a trio session. They had to take the entire big band back into the studio and pay yep. to record the album again. That's, uh, that's pretty great. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's move on to disc three, which uh, in this collection, the Art History Project is titled Consummate Art, 1972 mm-hmm. to 1982. And now... Uh, I th- I think I'm right in saying that now we're in the period from which the previous Widow's Taste albums have, have primarily come, right? Kind of this That's this where period. where we are, yeah. Where, when, I, when I came on the scene. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the art that we're hearing. And you've already uh, described it to some extent as kind of a, a combination of the 50s art and the 60s art uh, merged together. What, what do you hear as the final, the final product of that merger? I hear it as a reconciliation for art because one of the things, which I don't think I even said in the notes, is that art had been alienated from the jazz world because he had been in prison and because he had been living a completely different life. He just felt that the jazz world didn't want him. And then, of course, the the reaction to his modern, so-called modern playing. And what happened, actually, the turning point was that Buddy Rich band. And he was reconciled at that point to 
the idea that he was a musician and that he was an artist. And then, of course, he became really ill and wound up in Synanon and didn't think he would ever play again. But when he did come back and play, he was the person that he had been becoming when he was in Buddy's band. And I think that that was sealed with the, um, with the Village Vanguard uh, session where he really, really came into his own. I think that Village Vanguard box is probably the best thing he ever did. Yeah, so that, and he just became freer. He became more bluesy. He was able to be totally lyrical. He was able to do everything that he needed to do in music. And he was also getting the recognition, finally, that he had craved because he craved it. You know, he really wanted to be famous. He wanted to be admired. He wanted to be adored. And he finally was. Yeah, we talked about this uh, two years ago, and the only way I, I remember that is having listened to our interview in preparation for this show. But, yeah. but Art, um, you know, we we one of the things we talked about last time was that, that toward the end of his his time playing, I mean, Art was not in the greatest health all the time, certainly, no. and he'd put himself you know through a lot. I mean, yeah. uh, in the years, but unlike so many people for whom that is the case, you know, Art. Not only did he not rest on his laurels, but if anything, his playing became more intense, more emotional, more expressive, and he seemed to have more command of the horn. I mean, when you hear, uh, you know, obviously he could always blaze through tunes and that kind of thing back in the 50s, but when you listen to this third disc, I mean, you really hear a guy who, as you just said, he can make he can make the horn do anything he needs it to do in the Absolutely. musical setting. Yeah, uh, I love hearing you say that, because that was the case at that point, and those Two cuts from Fat Tuesdays uh, really illustrate that. I mean, that music is so great. And what was happening, part of it was that he was making up for lost time, you know, that he was reconciled to the idea that he really was an artist and not a uh, criminal. And he also knew that he didn't have long. And there were all those years when he hadn't been recorded, when he'd been screwing around. And he had to make up for those years. And I would say during that last period of his life, he was, there wasn't a week that went by that he wasn't performing somewhere. So, of course, it had, you know, the effect of giving him more and more control and power over what he, what he needed to say. Thank you. 
the uh, the very last line of the liner notes for this release uh, just really blew me away uh, when I read it, and it, it is he was one of those deep, true poets who save us all over and over again as we go through all the crap and glee. Uh, as someone you know who was right by his side through a large portion of that, um, and a lot of crap and glee. I, <laughs> I can I can only imagine. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Mountains, I mean, mountains of both. <laughs> what uh, what what do you feel the impact of knowing Art Pepper was for you? Well, for me, let me start with what the impact of hearing Art Pepper was for an awful lot of people, which was at those moments when the music happened, and it's true of any great art, it will do this to you. Things don't matter anymore. Nothing matters. None of your griefs or your... Uh, or your disappointments, or your expectations, it all just goes away. And you are living in that moment, and you are perfectly happy. It is the closest thing to heaven that we can experience. So there is that. And then in addition to that, all my life I was a very ambitious person, but with no, no driving talent like Art had. And I didn't, you know, and I think there are a lot of people who just, and I was raised in a family of artists, you know, dancers and musicians and people like that. And I wanted to do something, but I never could hit on the thing that I could do, you know. And when I met Art, and then when I started thinking about writing down Straight Life, it was like when I hitched myself up to Art Pepper Everybody talks about how beneficial it was to art, but what it did for me was it completely changed my life because it really gave me something to do. And I'm not talking about being the good little wife and supporting her husband. I mean, I'm talking about the book and and then getting the bands together and touring and, you know, and all the rest of it. And now these albums. Well, I've uh, I've told you before, and I'll I'll say it again that uh, you know, really hands down, Art's my favorite alto sax player ever, and uh, and Straight Life. That's good, I love hearing that. I'm sorry, but I oh, just that's, love it. That's perfectly fine. And yeah. <laughs> you know, Straight Life, as I as I said two years ago, you know, there's I think it's the best, certainly the best jazz autobiography ever written, and yeah. probably one of the best autobiographies, and I highly recommend it to folks. Uh, my guest is is Lori Pepper. She has uh, released several now. I think this, if you count these three this CDs, it's six, right? Yeah. But it's four four releases, but six CDs worth of music um, documenting art. Uh, Actually, it's nine nine CDs. Oh, worth that's right. I yeah. my gosh, I forgot the other ones were multiple discs too. Man, right. oh man, what a what a treasure trove. Yeah. This one is called uh, the Art History Project. It is uh, three CDs that cover uh, the 1950s uh, all the way up through the 1980s. And Lori, it's been a pleasure having you on again and I thank you for being here thank you Jason that was great that was really fun
That's Art Pepper from the new three-CD set, The Art History Project, put out by Lori Pepper on her Widow's Taste label. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. By the way, The Jazz Session has a widget put out by All About Jazz, and uh, you can find out how to get that by uh, visiting thejazzsession.com or allaboutjazz.com. And if you put that widget on your website and let me know about it, I will feature your website in my newsletter. The Jazz Session has uh, an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You'll find the mailing list plus every episode of the show for free at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo, and who I got to hang out with recently after not having seen him for many years. It was very nice. And we even went to see jazz for free, but don't tell anybody. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, which takes less time to understand than it does to say, and you can find out more at thejazzsession.com. You know, as always, thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz, and I mean it, whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.